Welcome to the Newberry Tart Podcast. Your hosts, Marcy and Jenny, are talking and drinking their way through Newberry award-winning books, past and present. Hi, and welcome back to the Newberry Tart Podcast. I'm Marcy. And I'm Jenny. Today we're speaking with Darcy Little Badger, honor of the 2022 Newberry Honor Book, A Snake Falls to Earth. Hi, and welcome to the podcast. We're so happy to have you here. Thank you so much. I'm happy to be here. (laughs) We're in a little bit of a unique situation for us because normally we're talking to people who have won the Newberry or Newberry Honor and asking about their experience with that happening. This time, Jenny was actually on the committee, so she was on the other end of the phone call or email. Actually, this is the first time we've been able to talk about that, so I'm not sure which it was. Jenny, what was, was it an email or a phone call? We actually called the honor winners this year. Cool. So you were on the other end of that phone call, but I was not. So Darcy, what was it like to get the the Newberry Honor phone call? Oh, first of all, it's so great to talk to you. Um, and, and yeah, it was like a group call. So I felt really bad that I couldn't see everyone and, and thank everyone in person, but that probably would have taken a, a long time. <laughs> and my story is a bit embarrassing. That's our favorite kind. <laughs> yeah, I, I think I've told this many times before. My phone was broken. And I actually did have to eventually get a new phone because what I do is I, I hold on to a phone until it, it's the very last possible moment. Because I'm like, I don't want to waste. Like, I want to keep this phone. I don't care about getting the, the new version every year. Anyway, that, that kind of <laughs> became an issue because the speakers weren't working. Oh, no. A myriad of things weren't working. But in this case, the speakers weren't working. So everything sounded kind of like a a robot coming through, all these garbled robot voice. If I didn't have speakers actually plugged in, little headphones. So when I got this call, I I heard someone on the other end of the line, and I swore they said something about uh, warranty. So I was like, oh, no, this is one of those those spam callers asking me about my extended warranty, and it's it's, – I'm I'm, I'm not sure I have time for this right now. So I I said – uh, no, thank you. Oh, and no. I was about to like press the hang up button when I heard some sort of, it, it was, it was robotic, but there was a hint of dismay in it. And I realized <laughs> like these spam callers, they, they probably get rejection all the time. I'm not sure they'd be dismayed. What if this is actually a real call? <laughs> so I, I, I told him to hang on and, and I found some little little headphones and plugged them in and then heard that it, it was a call from the ALA, which was exciting, but also I was like, what have I done? Um, so uh, I, was, I was actually connected to the committee. And when I, when I heard the news, first of all, it came as a complete surprise. I mean, I, I'm sure most people, like they, they don't expect to, to get this type of honor. And with me, I wrote a young adult book, so it was even more surprising. At the time, I I didn't even know that it it could be considered for the Newberry. Uh, And really, I I thought at that moment of all the Newberry books that I read growing up, you know, I went to elementary school in in Iowa and in Vermont. Now, we had these programs where the students would would read the, the honor books and the medal winners and they really made such an impact on my life and all of these memories kind of came flooding back and 
I was just, I was, I was so grateful. And also just, I, I was trying not to embarrass myself further because I, I, it was, it was a, it was a wonderful moment. Let me put it at that. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> I'm glad you didn't hang up on them. <laughs> I, I love that you were, I love that you were like, maybe the robot has feelings. I should listen. <laughs> having a really bad day. Yeah, I love that because that happened before you were connected with us. So, yeah, so we we just got to hear you getting the news and everything. And it's really funny because we were told like, we were, okay, because it was a phone call. We were told like, there's a like a little bit, a little section where you can say hello or congratulations, but the rest of the time you have to be very quiet, which makes sense because it would just be all of us like crying and being like, you're <laughs> but I'm really glad that we got through to you. Oh, thank you. So I know that Jenny, you you read A Snake Falls to Earth probably multiple, multiple times <laughs> in the course of your deliberations, but I just recently read it for the first time and I'm kind of in love with it. It's so Darcy, I don't know if this will make sense to you. I don't know what kind of books that you read when you were growing up, but for me, it almost has like a Charles Delint flavor to it. It's like a different flavor of a Charles Delint book because he, he wrote all those urban fantasy novels. And this is like the indigenous version of that where like there's contemporary and historical and legendary things like all mixed up together. And it's it's just wonderful. I love it. Oh, thank, thank you so much. Uh, and, and that makes me so happy to hear that, that you read the book. Um, that's something really cool. I, I love hearing that young readers read it and also that adults read it. And, and yeah, I've got to read some Charles Dillon now. Yeah, growing up, I did read a lot of, of fantasy. And really, I would read whatever was in the fantasy section. So that included things that took place like in contemporary times, but also things that took place in secondary worlds. And thinking of the, the animal people in A Snake Falls to Earth, I mean, I even wonder if, if some influence from the Red Wall series got in there when I was uh, really young. I used to love that because of the badgers and, you know, the other animals too, but mostly the badgers, because badger is actually a figure in, in our, our live-on stories. In fact, a really important one, especially in the, the origin story. So that's, that's where my name comes from, actually. But I would read these books that had these animal characters. I'm like, oh, hey, they're like our animal people. But also they're doing all these really fun things. Um, so it, thinking about the way that A Snake Falls to Earth incorporates both this fantasy secondary world where I completely invented a lot of elements and then uh, a world that is essentially Earth just in the near future dealing with all of the issues that we may be dealing with in the near future in terms of climate especially. I wonder if just having such a varied background in terms of the fantasy I read helped me stitch these two places together. Oh, I'm sure it must have. Not to mention, I read that you have a science background. Oh, yes, I do. So I have a PhD in oceanography uh, and a bachelor's degree in geosciences. When I was Younger, I did my thesis on things such as using sea level indicators from 400,000 years ago to try to predict how local uh, sea level will change uh, across the across the globe. And I also looked at how ocean acidification would affect a uh, type of, of plankton 
And then when I was getting my PhD, I studied plankton genetics, actually. <laughs> so that too is very, I, I guess it, it's very biological oceanography. I, I ended up being super interested in, in plankton that produce toxins and red tides. That's such an important line of research and I think overlooked often. <laughs> So given your background reading fantasy and also your scientific background, what are some of the things that you maybe take took liberties with in Snake Falls to Earth? Oh, sure. That's a, an interesting question, too, because when you're writing fantasy, I, I'm the type of person, even when I'm writing science fiction, for example, I'm in the, the, the school of thought where story is important. So when it like the physics of wormholes, I, I don't feel compelled to basically write a story that can be peer reviewed because, you know, we don't know a lot of stuff that's going to happen in the future. Uh, with the snake falls to earth, what I tried to do was make very distinct what magic was for, I call it world shaping in this book, because we are dealing with a version of earth that really doesn't have world shaping. And I was trying to portray a near future where, you know, climate change has proceeded from the point it is now. And some of these things that happen, they're predicted to be threats to Texas in the near future. But of course, we don't really, we don't really know um, 100%. That's the thing with making these predictions. We can do ranges and, and say we think that this is the maximum amount of, for example, uh, temperature increase that we're going to get in the future. And this is the minimum amount. And depending on what people do um, between now and then, that's going to affect that. But when it comes to things like hurricanes, uh, that's even more difficult to predict. Like we think that, you know, possibly in Texas in the near future, because the surface ocean temperature is rising, things like that, hurricanes may be stronger. But of course, until we live through that, you know, the future always has room to surprise us. So I did my best to read the current literature and, and, and other things that, that compile all these, these uh, papers about what Texas really has to prepare for. And of course, we're already experiencing things like increases in, in temperature and the hottest days and the number of days per year over 100 degrees and stuff like that. And, you know, issues with drought and and. Surprisingly, there's a prediction that that rainfall even is going to be more intense during storms. Uh, I mean, flooding is going to be more intense during storms, and yet drought is also going to be more intense. So it's 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 something that I, I climate scientists um, think about a lot, and hopefully, my book <laughs> does a good job portraying that in a way that is easy for the reader to digest and, and that adds to the story. The main Toad character that Ami, who is, without doing spoilers, he basically propels a lot of the plot because he's in danger. And um, so I wanted to base this Toad species off of a, a, real, a real species that's at risk. But on the other hand, I also wanted to make it my own. So I, I named it the Dallas Toad, and 
the Dallas toad doesn't exist, but it's based on the Houston toad, which does exist and which has been on the endangered species list since the 70s. And it's really cool what people are doing today and what they have been doing to try to help this little little species survive because uh, habitat loss and stuff like that has, has really been threatening and, and reducing its numbers considerably. But we have groups that are trying to breed and reintroduce this little toad, and, and I hope that they're successful with that. But the Dallas toad is, it's partially the Houston toad, but also partially an invented species because I, I did pretty much, I didn't want to condemn a real species to extinction in the book or near extinction. Who knows, maybe Ollie will be able to save his friend and, and rescue this species. But I, I didn't want to be like, oh, it, in the near future, the Houston toad is all but, all but dead. Um, because that would be too sad, because I hope that's not the case. So I, I did take the liberty and invent this new little fella. And he's so likable. That book made me want just like my own little toad friend. <laughs> me too. Uh, the, I studied toads for this and, and my appreciation for toads just increased. Like I already thought they were sweet and, and cute and stuff, but it's just really cool to see how many different types of toads and what they look like and what their calls sound like and you know everything. <laughs> Given the timeline of, of when you were writing this, or when I think you must have been writing this, I wondered how your writing process was affected by COVID. Oh, absolutely. I, I guess there's a couple of aspects to this. First is that my debut was published in 2020. And of course, as writers, we do a lot of events to connect with readers. And that usually includes visiting schools when you write books for young adults. And it can also be going to conventions or speaking with groups of librarians, which, which I actually had the chance to do virtually. And that that's the thing is for my debut, everything was virtual, the book launch, all of these events. And it was something where I, I didn't feel like I was missing out because I didn't know what, what else there was. Uh, and it was really cool to see how people were using technology to, to adjust to this new reality of 2020. But speaking to friends, I, I did realize, you know, there, there is some sort of uh, joy to connecting with your readers face to face and being able to sign their books and and maybe have conversations about what they enjoyed reading and and all these things that, that I was wondering. I'm gonna be like excited to know what that's like, but in the future because this is important. Because on the other side of things, in 2020, my father was he had terminal cancer. And something that I don't think is discussed enough is how the just the flood on, on our our doctors and our nurses, just the strain of the resources in the hospital, it affected uh, everyone. And unfortunately, well, I, I won't get into too much of this because it's quite sad. Um, I was whenever possible in the, you know, in the ER, or not the ER, the ICU with him. And I, I got to experience a lot of, of human suffering 
not just within our family, but I saw other families, people who couldn't be with their loved ones who were dying, who were outside and just like the hospital and just heartbroken. And so this, this was, I should also say my brother was an essential worker and he, in March, that's kind of when they started becoming aware that, that this, that COVID-19 was a very serious problem. So at that time he was working the warehouse and helping them stock shelves. And, and of course there were a lot of supply issues where people weren't getting what they needed. But unfortunately that spring, he became very, very sick. And in those days, testing wasn't available. We, we kind of sometimes, I know I take for granted now the access to testing, but he wasn't able to get a test. So basically, because he didn't want to expose my family, especially my father to this disease, he had to live in a tent in the basement when he was, I, I've never seen him so sick. He actually recovered, which I'm so grateful for. Unfortunately, my father passed away. So during all this time, you know, I actually wrote a snake falls to earth in 2020. And some of that was when I was in the ICU with my father or when he was in a long-term room. And even after he, he passed away, I finished the book. And I wonder if I was trying to write this quickly enough for him to read it sometimes. But it was kind of an escape for me. And I tell people when tragedy happens, and you're unable to write, first of all, that's okay because writers are humans. And so it's okay for stress and sadness to make it difficult to write. And just in my case, I was able to write this story. And I do think that it was in some ways a distraction from, from the hardships of, of 2020. In other ways, I, I think I was trying to write something for my father and for my family. But regardless, I did end up writing A Snake Falls to Earth and sent this off to my editor and the rest is history. But I've heard so many stories from so many writers and so many other people about how that year was so difficult and the losses they experienced. And at the time we were, we were essentially suffering alone because of, you know, with isolation and quarantine and things like that. But just, just hearing these other stories uh, makes me feel less alone because I realized that, that so many people were going through this um, together. And uh, you, can only, you can only hope that the future is, is you know, easier. Yeah, I'm, I'm so sorry for your loss. I did I did read an article where you spoke or an interview I think where you spoke about your father and he he sounds like the most amazing supportive parent. <laughs> oh, thank you. He he really was and and one of my greatest I, I guess blessings and privileges in life is is having two parents who are loving and supportive and my father in particular because he was well, growing up, he was studying English, and he eventually did become an English professor, and then the the head of the, the writing department at WCSU. And, and so he had this insight into the writing process. And <laughs> when I decided I wanted to become a writer, 
he was actually a grad student. And I mentioned this in my acknowledgments, but I wrote my first book when I was pretty young. Uh, I was in first grade, actually, and didn't have the, the greatest grasp on grammar or spelling, <laughs> you know, all sorts of things. But he he actually helped me edit that book. And I was using my family's one computer at the time, because this was the 90s. <laughs> so computers compared to what they are today were a bit more basic. And, and people didn't all have their own, you know, individual laptops or desktops. Uh, at least my family didn't. So I would use that computer to type in my my book when my parents might have, you know, they're they're being very nice in letting me use it when they were students. But he he actually then helped me send it to a publisher, and I got a really nice rejection back. <laughs> it was it was like a forty page mystery about murdered garden, <laughs> and I I actually can't remember what the plot was. <laughs> So I need to go back and read that. But I, I appreciate how kind the rejection was. They knew I was a child. So that I guess they didn't want to crush me. But my father, you know, he told me that this is something I should be proud of because it's part of being a writer. You put yourself out there and you don't always get a yes back. And that's OK. So he he framed that rejection uh, and told me that someday I would I would publish a book and I look back at this and see how far I'd gone. But he would, it was true. And I, I think a large part of where I am today is the support that he gave me growing up, gave me and my dreams. And that's really not just in writing, but in my personal life too. What stories did you kind of made you want to be a writer? What what sparked your imagination? Oh, yes, um, and since, since I did want to be a writer so early, and by early I mean I was making books when I was you know uh, two and three and four years old uh, because my parents would read me picture books and I would see these these picture books and think, oh, I want to make my own. But, you know, at age two, <laughs> a lot of the words I would put in them would just be scribbles. So I guess I was a writer before I could write, if that makes sense. <laughs> no, I was a storyteller. That's what I'll say. That's adorable. <laughs> it, it, it's so I was really young, which means that the books that kind of sparked these interests were, were picture books. And I'm, I'm trying to remember, my mom would also read me a lot of nursery rhymes. But something else is she would tell me stories without books. And you see that a lot in my work, the influence of our traditional Lipon stories, uh, especially the stories that were seemed to be told for entertainment uh, and comedy and to to take the listener on these adventures with these these uh very interesting, far-out characters, uh, including, you know, trickster coyotes, one of them that, that the Lipon people actually have in our stories, too. But we, we had other animal people appear in them and human, <laughs> human heroes. So those types of stories, I, I guess, were also an inspiration to me. And I do have to mention that, that storytelling can be quite powerful because stories can also be vessels for knowledge. And, and and wise people are those who know a lot of stories. At least that's what, what Lipan people have believed for a long time. 
But for me, it, it, it was these these comedy adventure stories in particular, I think, really make their way into my writing, especially my fantasy books. Um, like A Snake Falls to Earth, that secondary world I invented, if you, especially the cast of animal people characters, I, I do think that they were they were strongly influenced by these stories I heard growing up. I was so excited to to read this book. I I was completely unfamiliar with the Lipon tribe. I always love finding like Native American folk tales mixed into new fairy tales, but I was just completely familiar and I mean completely unfamiliar with yours specifically. So it's, it's, I don't know, it's like finding this like treasure trove of, of oh, new no. awesome <laughs> stories that I, that I get to explore. But, you know, there, I don't know if you ever read, there are a series of short story collections, um, like fantasy and fairy tale short story collections. And each one is themed, collected by Ellen Datlow and Terry Windling. And oh, I read a lot of Ellen's um, horror anthologies, but uh, sorry, go on. <laughs> yeah, no, she's well, they have this like the series of anthologies of fantasy and kind of folktale stories, and each one is themed, so they'll be like, uh, there, I mean, every kind of genre you can think of, ghosts or like ver- various, very specific kind of fairy tales. But one of my favorites when I was, I want to say in college, maybe a teenager, there's one called, I'll probably get the title wrong. It's called The Coyote Road, uh, Trickster Tales. And I doubt that most of the authors are indigenous people themselves, but it's all themed on like those coyote trickster stories. And it's such a fun book. Oh, yeah. He's like... Um such an interesting character in these stories because like uh it, it varies it from tribe to tribe the way that he is portrayed and and my my spouse who's Navajo actually to them coyote is a lot more sinister than he is to us so it, it's it's really interesting how prevalent he is and I personally, I, I think tricksters are fun. And there's all sorts of tricksters that appear. Like if, if you look at like global stories, you're going to find a trickster like all over the place. But uh, yeah, I've got to I've gotta read more anthologies about tricksters. <laughs> for sure. <laughs> this and one's kind of yeah, older, but yeah. <laughs> yeah that's, that's okay. Like I recently have started really reading Shirley Jackson's short stories. And I realized that growing up, I, I read her books. I never read her short stories. And it's just so cool discovering these old stories that I might've missed out on if I hadn't found a copy in Barnes and Noble somewhere. This goes back just a little bit. You said your mom would tell you stories growing up uh, without reading books. And is she was she this main storyteller in your family? Uh, yes, she was. And she I'm trying to think back, like my father would also read us books when we were really young. But my mother in particular, that would be almost a ritual with us, like I don't know if that's the right word. It's something we did every night. (laughs) Family tradition. There we go. (laughs) And I I love to, like, she would, for example, I mentioned nursery rhymes, but oftentimes she would just invent her own lines. She would just take these poems and keep going with them. And she would even sometimes personalize them for us. And I think that is just really... She has this gift of of telling stories, and I, I'm lucky that, that I, I 
had I experienced that gift when I was so young and, and when my, my imagination was developing and I've I've gotta see if she still remembers some of those rhymes that she that she made up. I I, I hope she wrote them down somewhere. But you know, with, with oral storytelling tradition, you can convey a story through many generations without having to write it down in a book. Um, and that's one reason, because the, the Lipon Apache, we're currently a, a pretty small tribe. I, I don't know how many enrolled members there are, but if you take into consideration that there are Lipon people who aren't actually enrolled in the tribe, it, even that is probably less than 10,000 people uh, in this country. So we're, we're pretty small. But we also went through a lot of, so in the 1800s, well, there, there's, there's books and papers about our, our history on the borderlands, but let's just say there were a lot of conflicts, uh, especially because at that time we lived in that area where both the U.S. and Mexico had, were intersecting and both sides at one point <laughs> wanted to kill us. <laughs> so there's a lot of difficulties there. We were actually never captured. Um, we were never put on our own reservation, although some Lipan people did end up on the Mescalero Reservation. This was a group that was really suffering, I, I believe, from smallpox at the time. So they 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 were they were in really desperate state. But the rest of we don't we don't have our own reservation. So it's a constant search now, uh, sorry, I got tongue tied, but in contemporary times, you know, land is something that we're always trying to preserve in whatever ways we can because our land was taken and we were essentially, you know, left to fend for ourselves in enclaves. And, and during that time, we could have lost a lot, if not for the power of oral storytelling. And like I said, this is this is also a vessel of knowledge, very important knowledge, knowledge of ceremonies too that that are sacred. Um, and I, I should say that I don't put any of those in my fantasy in my fantasy books. I, I stick to the the non-sacred stories of well, I guess in some ways, like all stories are a little bit sacred, but you know what I mean. Like yes. I, I won't put I won't put these very for example, our, our origin of the of, of everything, that, that's a story that I don't want to depict as fantasy, so I won't put that straight into my into my books, but just the power of this storytelling saved a lot for us during times when it was very difficult for us to survive. And um, I see that in my mother and hopefully Hopefully I've learned from her, <laughs> but of course it's, it's something where every year you try to, to get a little bit wiser and maybe someday I'll be wise. Uh, I'm not sure if I've reached that point yet, but I'm working towards it. <laughs> I, it's gotta be, I, um, it's has to be, I think satisfying, or at least I hope it is given how hard you have to struggle to sort of keep your space like physically in the world. It must be nice to finally have space in like the literary world for your stories oh yes it's it's wonderful and that like i say that as as someone who that's why i write you know that's why i, I publish i should say like because I, I could always write just for myself and 
you know, sometimes, especially when I was younger, I really enjoyed doing that. But there's that added element of wanting your stories to connect with readers that makes me really enjoy being a, a published writer because I, I have heard back from many young readers and some of those actually happen to be <laughs> Apache readers, which is which is just so cool to me that our, 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 our tribe is making such an impact, not just within this country, but even in, in other countries, you know, across, across the world, which I never, I, growing up, I, I didn't think that I had reached this level of success, I would say, as a published writer. I, I hope that I would, that I'd be able to write stories that, that classrooms could read together and, and the students you know, would hopefully enjoy. <laughs> I mean, some of them sure do, but you know, you can't you can't please anyone. I'm, I'm not. I'm definitely not the type of person who's like every single reader needs to love my book. I was like, no, just just the readers who need my book, who enjoy my book. That that's just really what's important. But yeah, it's so cool because in another way. This is helping us be more visible. Growing up, like I went to high school in Texas and in history class, we never learned, first of all, like about Native people. That really wasn't something that our history classes touched upon, maybe in a very, a very vague way. Like we, we studied briefly the Trail of Tears, but we didn't get farther than that in terms of, yeah, especially our our. our regional history in, in Texas. This is where the Lipon people actually, you know, uh, made a lot of impacts and still do actually. So I, I never learned about us. At, at one point I told a teacher who I was and, and she like didn't believe me. So I had to like Google the word Lipon and she was like, oh yeah, <laughs> um, they, they are, they are, they are people and they've been here for a time. But it, it's, it's now really cool to, to see that schools in Texas, where we've lived for so long, even before Texas was a state, uh, they're now reading Alatsoe, the state falls to earth, but that is actually inspiring students to look a little bit farther and to see, well, oh yeah, for example, we live in Houston and the guy, the city was named after actually worked with live on people, you know, that type of thing. And so that's neat, but also it's neat seeing oh, all the, the other Native writers that are being published, not just in genre fiction, but in, in other types of, of, of young adult children's, you know, middle grade fiction. Uh, and especially the, the Heart Drum imprint has been publishing just a whole bunch of books from so many different voices. And that's really exciting, too, because I think what that's going to do is it's really going to show show the world that we're not uh, not all just one monolithic, you know, Native Americans. You know, we all have our own individual cultures, our own individual histories, and we're people. So we're individuals, too. So that goes into these books. And it's been really, really cool to see this happening. And I do hope that that is going to continue to be something that is supported. Fingers crossed. I'm optimistic, but we'll see. <laughs> Is there going to be any more strange lands or, uh, and, or, and or any more tales from the Alatsoe world? 
Ah, well, the first one, fortunately, no. Strangelands, for anyone who's not familiar, it was basically my first experience work, uh, working in, in. So I'd done a web comic before that and done some really short comics with, with some indie anthologies. Strangelands, I co-wrote, and it, it's a eight-issue series. And unfortunately, it's, it's self-contained within eight issues. Okay. Um, but that was a really fun learning experience. And, and Mags actually taught me a lot, my co-writer. Yeah, so she was cool. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> unfortunately not, although that was so fun. In terms of Galaxy, I can say with, that there's a lot of potential in that world to do more with it. So we'll see. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Thank you. And then we were curious about your favorite Newberry, if you have one. Oh, that was hard. So when I realized I'd be asked this question, I looked at a list of all the Newberry winners. And so the last quick G stuff. <laughs> okay. Okay. But aside from that, the one that like pops into my head, first of all, I love so many of them. So this isn't my favorite, but the one that I think is the most memorable would be Holes. And that's because, oh, what's the name of that? That like, she was such a terrible character and she had like these nails that had basically like venom on them. Oh yeah. And just like that, that image like was so horrific, but also like so very villainous. It's something that I think of. And I, I guess that, that book was just, it, it was certainly it was certainly fun to read, so I'll, I'll, I'll go with that. <laughs> That's a good one. I don't think we've had anybody say that one yet. We're so thrilled that you had time to talk to us today. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you so much. It was great talking to you. Thank you so much for listening to our interview with Darcy Little Badger, the Newbery Honor winning uh, author of A Snake Falls to Earth. Please rate and review us on whatever platform you listen. It helps other people find the podcast and helps the podcast keep going. And please find us on social media. We're on all the usuals. Thanks so much for listening. Bye. Production assistance for Newberry Tart is provided by Raphael Siebenman and Liam Grove. Graphic design by Liz Mytinger. Intro and outro by Ariana Hargrave. Theme music for this podcast is provided by the laid-back and local Throckmorton Ukulele Band. You can hear more of their music on Facebook. Find more Newberry Tart episodes at iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Our website is Newberry Tart. That's N-E-W-B-E-R-Y-T-A-R-T dot com.